Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Uh, it's a joy to be able to have the opportunity to open God's Word with you. If you're anything like me, you probably recently have started to feel uh, a little bit overwhelmed by the reality that we've been quarantined for over a month now, which means that uh, we have been left to ourselves. And uh, there's a sense in which I think that we can in our hearts feel really safe as we are in our homes, others are in their homes, and yet we know at the same time we are spiritually vulnerable. Uh, there's a sense in which as we are alone in the home, we can begin to believe that uh, we are safe from all of the dangers that are out there and yet simultaneously recognize uh, that we are in danger of having a very small vision of our lives. Uh, it, it is possible that in these moments we might be even more susceptible to being self-centered in the way that we think about all that is. Well, this morning we have a grand vision of God that is presented to us in 2 Samuel 6 that I hope raises our gaze to our great God and gives us a bigger vision about the reality of who we are and this creation that God has made for us. Now, as we think about this this morning, I'm reminded about the nature of the way that the Bible from time to time puts two realities together that don't seem like they should fit. So for instance, this morning, we're going to notice that God is calling David uh, in this context. We find these realities of David rejoicing before God with all that is in him. And at the same time, we find the fear of the Lord front and center. And as you think about that, you might think to yourself, fear and rejoicing, they seem to be uh, not like two things that should go together like good friends, but instead uh, they seem to be like these two realities that are just hard to put together. And yet we find them together throughout the scriptures. In fact, if you think about the book of Philippians, uh, we find that in that book Paul tells Philippian Christians that they are to work out their salvation with fear and trembling in Philippians 2. But then it's just a couple of chapters later in chapter 4 where he says, and I want you to rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. And so there are these commands, even as Christians, that we are to rejoice while also fearing the Lord and having an awe-inspiring vision of him. Well, we're right back in our series on David in 2 Samuel 6, where David is bringing up the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And we see David both fear and rejoice in the same chapter. Those two things are mingled together. Now, if most of you, or most of what you know about the Ark of the Covenant comes from Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Ark, then let me give you a little bit of a background about the nature of the Ark, what it looks like and where it's from and where it's been. So you'll remember that God gave Moses the blueprints for the tabernacle in Exodus 37. And he empowered Bezalel to build this ark as the centerpiece of what would be the people of God, the Ark of the Covenant. And it was made of a box of acacia that was overladen with gold. On the side, it had rings that two poles were placed between to carry it. In fact, uh, we find in uh, the scriptures that we are told that the Kohathite clan of Levites were the only ones that were supposed to carry this box. Uh, it was a box that was uh, four, and a half, four and a half about feet long, uh, and it was somewhere around two foot seven, uh, both like at its length and height, or width and height. And so uh, this box was the ark of God, and God told them that it was holy. 
It, it was something that they were not to look upon or even touch because it represented the very presence of God. And if they did, they would die. Kind of reminds you of when Moses was on the mountain in Exodus 19 and he told people not to break through to be in God's presence or he would break out against them. Well, you'll remember that on this ark, there were two gold cherubim. They looked like humans, but with wings. And the wings would cover themselves as they looked at one another. And these cherubim are interesting because you'll remember that it points us back to the Garden of Eden when God cast out Adam and Eve for their sin. And there they are wielding these flaming swords and they were majestic, powerful creatures that were meant to keep people back from God. And yet here, these fearsome creatures are humbly bowing such that their wings are separating God from man. And it was on top of their wings that God would meet with man. And this became the footstool or the throne of God. It was the mercy seat where God would meet with his people. And in the box, it carried a jar of manna, Aaron's rod, and the Ten Commandments. That's the law of the covenant. And that law was regulating the relationship of this great God who was their king and his vice regents, his people, who would be a, a royal priesthood and a holy nation. And they would mediate relationship between the people of God and the nations. If they kept the law, God said, I'm going to bless you. And if you break the law, there are going to be curses that come. And after, 30, or after over 300 years in Shiloh, the Philistines took this ark in 1 Samuel 4. You'll remember that God struck the Philistines with plagues and even dropped Dagon, their idol to their God, like he was hot. And they were so fearful that they actually sent back offerings to Israel. And, and they placed that ark on a new cart and as it rolled into Beth Shemesh, the, the Israelite camp, they were working in the fields. And we find there in 1 Samuel that as they look up, they rejoice to see the ark coming back. God had saved the ark and brought his presence back to them. But here's what's shocking. What we find is in 1 Samuel 6 that as those men looked up from the fields, they looked upon the ark which was not covered, and 70 of them were dropped dead right where they stood. And it was then that these men who had been rejoicing just moments before cried out in verse 20, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? The God they were rejoicing in moments later, they were terrified of. And so they sent the Levite Abinadab to come and get it. And he brought it to his house and that's where they kept it up until 2 Samuel 6, where we are this morning. And here we find God's King David. He says, it's time to bring the ark in, the presence of God, his throne up to the city of David. And as he's doing it, he is dancing and rejoicing over this fearsome God and king. Now, King David humbles himself and rejoices before the fearsome king of kings. He is rejoicing and fearing all at the same time. See, God created us for the purpose of worship. You know, we're always talking about how important it is that we become disciples who make disciples. And one critical aspect of a disciple, if a, a disciple is working on all cylinders, a disciple is someone who is actually worshiping God, 
full of awe and wonder and praise and rejoicing at the sight of their great God with whom there is no equal. Here we find in this text our big idea this morning, which is this. Our fearsome God calls us to humbly rejoice in his reign. Our fearsome God, if you're taking notes, write this down. Our fearsome God, he calls us to humbly rejoice in his reign. Let's pray and ask for God's help this morning as, as we look to his word. We pray with me. Father, this morning we come before you. And Father, we confess that all too often when we approach you, we approach you as those who are more interested in the rejoicing and the praising and the good things and not as concerned as we ought to be about being fearful before a holy and righteous God. And so this morning, Father, as we come to your word, we ask, we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit that we might understand your holy word, that we might know you are God who is holy, holy, holy all the more. Father, do this for the glory of your name we do pray. Amen. Well, the first thing we see this morning is that David brings the ark up rejoicing. Uh, you'll notice this in, in verses 1 to 4. You'll notice in the first couple of verses, David takes 30,000 soldiers and he's taking them to, to bring up God's throne from Abinadab's house at Baal Judah, which is also known as Koriath Jerem. Now in verse 2, David says, The ark is called by the name of the Lord Yahweh of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. I love this name of God, Yahweh Sabaoth, a, a name that's used throughout the Old Testament. In fact, Herman Bevink, in his dogmatics, picks up on this, and he says this of this title. He says, Yahweh Sabaoth characterizes him being God as king in the fullness of his glory, who, surrounded by regimented hosts of angels, governs throughout the world, is the mighty, and in his temple receives the honor and acclamation of all of his creatures, not, not just humans, but all of his creatures come before him, bringing him the praise that is due his name. Now, you don't just ease up on the transcendent king of the cosmos. I, I think that if we had a, a real vision of who God is, we would know that you don't just ease up on Yahweh Sabaoth. And in fact, uh, I have an example that came to mind of this from time that I had when I was in Washington, D.C. for a season, uh, I used to love to jog by the Capitol. And on most days, it was pretty normal. It was a pretty standard event, lots of tourists walking around. But every once in a while, I would show up, and you would see these guards armed with these semi-automatic rifles and these dogs, these German shepherds with huge teeth. And they all looked kind of like serious and not ready to mess around. Like there wasn't like this thought, I wonder if these guys would like me to crack a joke right now. Well, these guys were, they were on the ball. They were watching. And, and I knew that on that day, there was somebody special, the president at the Capitol. And, and it wasn't a time just to ease up on the Capitol. I used to actually reroute myself a little bit around the building because I didn't want to do anything to cause any trouble with these guards. Now, I want you just to imagine this for a second. The vision that we get of God as Yahweh Sabaoth is that he has armed guards all around him. But they aren't just humans with guns. 
These are angelic beings. These are otherworldly beings in different kinds that we find, seraphim and cherubim, and probably creatures that we have never seen all around the throne of God, worshiping him and glorifying him. That is not a throne that you just ease up on or treat lightly. But notice what happens in verses three to four about how Israel brought up this ark. It says, and they carried the ark of God. Did you catch that? They carried the ark of God. Of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. Now, at first sight, this looks really respectable. But there is an eerie similarity between the Philistines returning the ark to the Israelites in 1 Samuel 6, 7, on a new cart. And this new cart that Abinadab's sons are driving. I mean, why does it say that they carried it with a new cart? Why doesn't it say that they carried it with poles as God's law commanded? I'm sure it seemed in this moment that they were being innovative with this new cart. It was more efficient. The oxen it increased speed and it decreased the load on Uzzah and Ahio. And the cherubim bowed on the cover of this ark. And they shielded their eyes from God with their wings and humility as these men are being innovative with their worship. But you wonder if Abinadab's sons got too comfortable with the ark. You wonder as you look at this and you pay attention to the details, if, if they got too lax and casual in their treatment of the throne of God. I mean, did they assume that they were safe disobeying God or presume on their covenant God's loving kindness and forget that he was a fearfully majestic creator God above all of his crea creation? Did they forget God's word and what he had told them about how to treat the ark? Did they lose a sense of awe and wonder over the terrifying prospect of sinners coming into the presence of a holy God? Catch how quickly their rejoicing turns to trembling in verses 5 to 11 when second, God breaks out against Uzzah. He breaks out against Uzzah. You'll notice, verse 5, that David planned a party. This is the context. Uh, David has this party that he has planned, and he has organized music and dancing to celebrate the arrival of God's throne in the city of David. This is going to be a great day. In fact, this is such a unique day that David introduces something new into the worship of God's people. If you read the similar account in 1 Chronicles 14 to 15, it actually elaborates on what's going on in this scene. And there we find that David actually meticulously chose certain Levites gifted at singing and instrumentality. And he added them to the music of the worship of God. He adds music to coming into the presence of God to celebrate the beauty and the glory of what that is. And after God's Own Heart, a book by Mark Boda, he says this. He says, David introduces a new phase in Israel's life. The ark will still be at the center, but David receives direct 
revelation to introduce a new set of sacred objects, musical instruments, now dedicated to the worship of God. And the king wears garments of priests alongside the Levites. So sacrifices, they'll continue, but they will be accompanied by songs of praise. See, there will be a mingling of singing and sacrificing, rejoicing and trembling, joy and fear as they enter into the presence of God. And the worship of God will lead to to dancing for some and death for others. And Uzzah and Israel learned this the hard way. Catch what happens as soon as the party gets started in verses 6 to 7. They just got the music going. And here's what happens. Verses 6 to 7. The word of God says this. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to touch the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen had stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down beside the ark. Right there. In his place. Why? Because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. The ox stumbled. The ark dropped. Uzzah's reflexes kicked in. And he reached out and he caught it. And his brother was probably like, Good catch! And God struck him dead because of his hair. Just like that, the dancing turned to death. Now, maybe that sounds super extreme when you read something like this. I know from my human, finite, broken position, I look to this and I think, man, that seems super extreme. And what error did he commit? Well, well, it's God that said back in Numbers 4.15, do not touch these holy things lest you die. Don't even look upon them. But Uzzah's error was was touching the ark. And his reflexes were bad. See, he lived in the presence of the ark for many years and developed a, a casual laxity towards the presence of God. His heart drifted, I believe, towards a lack of fear of the Lord long before he ordered that new cart. That new cart that looked so much more like the Philistines in submission to God's word. This looked more like Saul's leadership than David's. See, good reflexes take repetition to create physical reflexes. If you want to be a a, a good basketball shooter and you want to shoot like Steph Curry, it is probably not going to happen when you're sitting on the couch watching Steph Curry on TV. You got to get out and you got to take the shots a thousand a day. And maybe with a little bit of God's grace, you might be a tenth of what Steph Curry is. Probably not. But it's not going to happen without actually going out and shooting the ball. See, good reflexes take repetition physically to create them. And good spiritual reflexes take the Holy Spirit, the grace of God, and a humble attentiveness to the voice of God. It takes repetitive, faithful obedience over time as you are submitting to God's word. I love what David says in Psalm 119.20. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. My reflexes are good because my heart is consumed. See, God's king meditated on the law day and night. And God tells us every sin is tantamount 
to cosmic treason against the Most High King. Yahweh Sabaoth. If we understand sin in relation to ourselves, it might not seem like a big deal. We're better than others. We're not as bad as that guy. But if we begin to understand sin in relation to Yahweh Sabaoth, the God of heavenly realms and host of angels, well, then that sort of redefines everything, doesn't it? See, good reflexes would have begun with a heart that feared the awesome splendor of his holy God covering the ark and carrying it by poles and not touching or even looking upon it just as God had said. Now don't miss this. Uzzah thought that he had God under control. And maybe that's you. You think, I've got God under control. I've been living in disobedience for a while. I've been not taking God's word serious for a while. In fact, I felt a little bit better not even knowing God's word because how can I be held responsible for what I don't know? And yet here what we find is that Uzzah was not safe. He thought he had God under control and he was safe with his Savior, but he was not safe. See, Yahweh is not controllable. He is not like the gods of the nations that if you give him this, then he will give you that. He is not a God who works under prid quo quo. He is not the kind of God that says, I will be willing to sort of be manipulated or uh, changed to contort to your will and your desires. That is not the God of the Bible. Now, the God of the Bible is not controllable or manipulatable like the gods of the Philistines. But catch what David's response is in verses 8 to 9. And David was angry. He saw what happened. God ruined his party. Uzzah ruined his party. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord, how can that ark come up to me? See, David was angry and afraid of God. Now, you know you're in trouble when the spirit-anointed, giant-slaying king is scared and angry. It's not a good place. In fact, one commentary speaking of this fear that David has here, he says this word is really describing a kind of fear of an adversary. Now, I think that that might be right because of a couple of things that stand out here. First, did you notice that God broke out against Uzzah like he broke out against the Philistines in 2 Samuel 5.20? Same word that's used. There David speaks of the Philistines and how God went before him and fought for them. And he says, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is but all Perizim, he was on that day enthralled by the majestic power of God breaking out against his enemies. But here we find that David says, today, but today it's different. God has destroyed Uzzah like he did the Philistines. He has broken out against us. In fact, second, uh, you'll notice that David adds in 1 Chronicles 15, 13, speaking of this same event, the Lord God broke out, there he says, against us. Not just Uzzah, but us. Because we did not seek him according to the rule. See, in the midst of their calculated celebration, they had all the, the instruments, the balloons, the songs were written, the service was ordered, and in the midst of it, they did not stop to take account 
for God's holiness. They forgot that God cares deeply about how his people approach him. God cares about how we come to him. And we only approach God on his terms in accordance to what the word of God says in the scriptures. Don't miss this. God is the savior of his people, but he is not safe. It's just like in Narnia when we find Susan learning that Aslan is a lion. And she goes, ooh, that's terrifying. But but is he safe? And of course the response is from the beaver, no, he... (laughs) He is not safe, but he's good. He's king, I tell you. He's not a safe God. Just ask Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, who offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, and it consumed them, and they died before the Lord. God is a consuming fire. Or as a fire, we know that God both gives us the light of truth and the warmth and and comfort of his care. But if we approach in a way that he has not commanded, the same fire that gives light and warmth can consume. Now maybe you're thinking this is just an Old Testament event, but don't forget Ananias and Sapphira. You remember them in Acts 5, 1 to 11. They sold land and kept some money for themselves and they went to the apostles and they lied to them about what they did with the money. And Peter looks first at Ananias and says, Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. And to keep some from yourself. And Ananias fell down dead just at hearing it. To be clear, it wasn't because Ananias made a sale and kept some money. It was because he lied and began to present himself as someone who was all in on the gospel who was not. And Sapphira came in three hours later, his wife, and she lied the same, not knowing what had happened to him, and the Holy Spirit dropped her as well. You know, there's no such thing as, as I read the scriptures as a casual Christian. There only seems to be one brand of discipleship and Christianity that I see in the pages of scripture. It is the, the disciple who follows Jesus taking up their cross, Christians don't treat being a part of the local church casually. They're not careless in gossiping about others. They aren't surfing the web hoping that they might fall into the wrong place. They sense their sin and they're desperate for the help of Christ. And they fear for those that are abiding under the wrath of God. They don't leave the throne room of God, the God of the host of the angels and and the creatures of heaven, and say, I think that this Christianity thing is something that I'm going to sign up to take casually. I'll play softball and I'll follow Jesus. It's not the, the ministry or the word of the Bible. No. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge that leads to rejoicing in God being God. And David is so messed up over this that he was willing to take the ark. He was unwilling to take the ark into his house in verses 10 to 11. He does not know how he can bring that to his home. God's throne to be next to his throne. He is fearful before God. And so he sends it to the private home of Abed-Edom, the Gittite, which we, we find that he is 
a Levite in First Chronicles. Now, surprisingly, the same ark that broke out against Uzzah blessed Obed-Edom every day for three months. And David's watching and he's hearing. And he's saying, okay, so maybe we did something wrong. Maybe God really is for us, but he cares about the way in which we approach him. And so it was in that moment that David's ready to rejoice in God again while serving him with fear this time. See, they're not at odds. Fear and rejoicing. It's fear that's going to give shape to the rejoicing. Now notice third here that David brings up the ark with dancing and sacrifices in verses 12 to 14. Now, this scene might seem a little bit like wash, rinse, and repeat, but the differences, the distinctions are what tell us what has changed. Notice what it says, and pay attention closely to verses 12 to 15. Here's what he says. He says, And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Now take note of the intentionality in verse 13. The Levites carried the ark. They carried this ark of the Lord. And this time, David made sacrifices. Sacrifices every six steps. Now, this place originally that it was was probably about 10 miles away. I don't know at what point he decided to start offering these sacrifices. But that's a lot of dead animals. That's a lot of care and concern and intentionality about how you approach God and what is emphasized about the nature of the way that you approach the Lord Sabaoth. It is that you need sacrifices to come before him. If you as a sinner are going to come before a holy God, it's going to take sacrifices. And all the sacrifices that they offered that day were not enough because they had to continue to offer sacrifices. And in verse 15... Not only are there sacrifices, and not only are the Levites holding it on poles like they ought to be, notice that David is dancing again. And this time he's dancing like it's 1999, right? I mean, he's dancing with all of his might. He is getting jiggy with it. He's doing everything he knows to give worship and praise to God. See, God's king becomes here something interesting. You'll notice that his Clothes tell us something about the nature of the posture of David before God. He's wearing a linen ephod. Now, robes that common Levites wore, not high priests, but common Levites wore, were these linen ephods. And you remember that Levites were considered to be servants in the house of God. So here's the king in the city of what? David. And what has David done on this day is he is bringing up the throne of God. He has thrown on the linen ephods and says, I am a common Levite. 
I have become a bellhop in the house of God to worship with my brothers and sisters. See, I might be the king, but I'm not the king. And David recognizes this. And everything about this image, it presents a picture of humility. I think it's funny that some Christians actually point to this text to, to say that, you know, Christians should still get jiggy with it. We should have dance and worship and that kind of thing. And I'm not here to stop a party or anything like that. So you do what you want. But I think Walter Brueggemann's right. This text, if you're using it for the celebration of dancing and worship, completely misses the point. The point is not the dancing, but the humility of the dancer who is looking by all accounts to be a servant in the house of God, dancing with servant girls and servants alike as one who is making nothing of himself. See, David, I love this. David's dancing like nobody's watching, but everybody's watching. Everybody's watching the king make a fool of himself before his holy God. David's dancing before the not-so-safe God, the God who broke out against Israel just three months ago. See, worship of God required sacrifices and resulted in dancing. God's holiness, it led to a humble obedience and a shameless rejoicing before God, both of them. And David knew who the Lord Sabaoth of heavenly host of angels was. See, the fear of God didn't eliminate singing, dancing, and rejoicing in God. No, David sang and danced before God as king and worthy of worship for all that he was and forever will be. And that's the way that we should worship God. You know, I think some of us like to view God as sort of like our lunchbox and like my kids view our lunchbox. You know what I'm talking about. They get ready for school, like used to. And when they did, they would take out their lunchbox and they would fill it from the pantry. And you know the Capri Sun went every day. They loved the Capri Sun. And they were always grabbing for the Cheetos. Who doesn't like Cheetos? But there weren't a lot of days that they were grabbing for the Brussels sprouts. Now they need Brussels sprouts to live and Brussels sprouts are good and nourishing. But they skip those. And I think sometimes we think of God kind of like that. We think of him as a pantry and we like his mercy and his grace and we love his faithfulness, but man, I, I am not so sure I want to take justice with me today. Now, unless somebody wrongs me, in which case I'll take two, thank you. And that's the nature of the way that we treat God, but that is not the way that worship works. We worship a profoundly praiseworthy God in all of his attributes and all of his character. And here David says, and now I've learned that God is just too, and I will praise him all the more. See, fear educates finite creatures on how to approach the infinite God. Fear teaches us how sinners can approach the holy God and just God. And the just God that struck down Uzzah for touching holy things is as praiseworthy as the God of loving kindness. Fourth, take note of the two responses to being before God, pride and humility. Pride and humility. We see both of these really clearly laid out in the end, in the verses 16 to 23. In fact, as you look at 16, you'll notice that we have sort of a summary of the differences where it says, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. David's dancing, and she, what is she doing? She is 
hating David. She despises him as as he is dancing before God. But catch Michael's pride in David's humility further in verses 17 to 23. Here's what it says. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered up burnt offerings, more offerings, peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. And then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. And we see a a couple of things going on here. First, take notice that Michal proudly refuses to rejoice before her king. She sees herself as great and the king as small. She does not see her need of this king. Now, throughout, David in 2 Samuel 6 is presented as being before the Lord. You might have noticed that. It's repeated continuously in verses 5, 14, 16, 17, and 21. David lived before the face of the Lord. He lived under the gaze of the God of the cherubim who hid their eyes from him. And he looks so much in these verses like a priest king, like Melchizedek, who came out of Jerusalem to to bless the father Abraham. But here David blesses the children of Abram who have gathered to offer sacrifices and sing to their great king, God. And he blesses them and feeds them. He even gave them cake to celebrate the king. Now you know it's a good party when you got singing, dancing, and lots of cake. That's exactly what he does. And all the while you'll notice that McCall, she's doing what? She's looking at David. She's looking upon him from out of the window. That tells us that she has not been a part of the celebration. She has not been a part of the rejoicing. She has actually been disdaining it and despising David in her room the whole time, isolated, meditating on how he does not look like the kind of king that her dad Saul was. And as she looked at David dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. She's almost, as you read this, snarling when he returns from blessing the people and sees with sarcasm in verse 2 when she says, Oh, man, how you have honored yourself 
before these servants, and not just servants, the lowest of servants, servant girls. You've humiliated yourself. And David's dancing before the Lord, but Michael only sees him dancing before the eyes of his female servants. See, David sees himself before the Lord. All Michael can see is David before others. And those perspectives lead to radically different postures towards God and others. See, here we find that he is dancing shamelessly. He's not dancing naked here. Doesn't seem that's what's going on. He's only wearing a linen ephod. And that's the point. He's wearing the linen ephod, not the royal robes. Because, like, why are you not showing the symbols of your power and your majesty and your authority on this day that we are recognizing God as the king of God's people? Why are you not using God to make much of you? Don't miss this. McCall didn't join the people in rejoicing the arrival of the throne of God. She looked down at David from the window. Michael has been associated with idols throughout, just like her dad Saul was. And did you notice how the text wants us to remember that she's the daughter of Saul? In fact, daughter of Saul, it almost seems like her last name. Every time, three times, in verses 16, 20, and 23. McCall, the daughter of Saul. McCall, the daughter of Saul. And Saul's line ended with her. She was barren because she did not worship Yahweh. You'll remember how Samuel began, humble Hannah. She was not from a royal lineage. She was barren and she went before the face of God again and again and he gave her Samuel. But here we have this daughter from a royal line who makes much of herself, makes much of her kingdom and we're told that her line ended and she ended up barren. The Lord opens and closes wombs. It's not always the judgment of God. Sometimes we live in a broken world and we have to trust Christ through suffering, all kinds of sufferings like barrenness. But here in this text, barrenness on King's wife McCall is judgment. McCall proudly despised the lowliness of her servant king husband hanging out and dancing before God amongst the other servants. She was blind to the glory of the king of kings. See, McCall didn't realize that she needed a different kind of king from the kings of the nations and kings like her father. Those kings who exalted themselves against God and his anointed. They needed this new king. And her pride led to a miserable, lonely, angry, praiseless life. She was too concerned with how she looked before servant girls to see the glory of the king of heaven. If you're here listening online and you're thinking to yourself this morning that I don't know this King Jesus that people keep talking about. I want you to know that David is a servant king that points to a greater servant king, King Jesus, who came to die for us. He was a humble king, and a lot of people reject him because he didn't look like the king that the world expected. They wanted a mighty warrior king. Israel wanted a mighty warrior king like McCall, but what they needed was a servant king who was willing to lay down his life. He humbled himself beyond what most people can stomach. And I know the world will tell you that what you really need, if you want happiness and joy and praise and dancing in your life, 
is to live for yourself and your own selfish desires. But I think that if you follow that pathway, you're going to end up like McCall, alone in a dark place in your room with a a lineage that ends, ends in death. You don't have the future and the hope that Christ has brought to us. In fact, Philippians 2, 5 to 8, Paul writes a song for us, a song of the church, probably a song that existed before him, and he puts it smack dab in the middle of Philippians, this encouraging book. And in this song, it begins in verses 5 to 8, saying this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he is in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So here's the humility of of Jesus. It is a greater humility than what David showed. David was a human who was made king by God, exalted by God. But he understood at the end of the day, he was still a mere mortal before his creator. Jesus is different. See, Jesus is the eternal son of God who lived with God from eternity's past, who had all glory and dominion and honor from the beginning. He was needful of nothing. And yet he willingly humbled himself and stooped to come down to dance amongst us. Not just to dance amongst us, but to mourn and to weep and not only offer sacrifices, but to be a sacrifice for other sinners who had no right to come before a holy God. So that his humility was a double humility. It was a a humility in the sense that God became man. But not only that, not only did he take on human flesh, but we find that he even double humbled himself and that he condescended to coming down and dying on a cross for us. And there was no other way for us to be exalted, to be lifted up from the grave, to be lifted up from the wrath of God in hell. There was no other way for us to be lifted up than that he came down for you and me. We have a humble king. And if you don't know that humble Jesus, let me encourage you, have a meaningful life. Live for Christ. Have hope, hope of worship. Worship to the fullest in God. And hear this, if that's your confidence, this humble king, the song keeps going in Philippians 2, 9 to 11. It says, after he was humbled, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him, catch this, the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. And every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. People die in God's presence if they don't have a selfless servant who has come to help them and usher them in. Jesus came to save sinners and to give them his Holy Spirit so they can rejoice before their awesome God and live to tell about it. Here's the the glorious news. The gospel isn't a gospel that like, hey, you can just keep living how you are and you're fine. No, it says you need to make Jesus your king, the king who died for you. You need to follow his voice and live for him. Turn from living for sin to living for him and you will be saved. But here's the the glorious end of that news. The story doesn't stop with suffering in this life and then we're dead. No, there is a new creation that's coming. I love the image in Zephaniah 317. 
It speaks of a day when God's people will come before him. And I love this image. It says, God himself will exult over you with loud singing. Now, I love the word for exult. It's actually a word that literally means to twirl around. The image is that God is going to be twirling around, dancing and singing over his people on the last day. See, friend, don't believe the lie that God is a killjoy and that you must be miserable in the isolation of your proud heart resistant to God. God is inviting you to the best party ever, the day when the groom, Jesus himself, will be reunited with his people, his bride, and there will be dancing and feasting. See, turn from living for sin and sorrow to living for your humble servant, dancing king. Proverbs 3.34 says this, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The other thing we see here is is that David humbly rejoices before his king. Pride leads to death, but humility, humility leads to life and dancing. Notice the way that he is humble and fearful and rejoicing all at the same time. You'll notice that David, as, as he is here, he tells McCall when she comes to him and says, oh, what you have done to yourself, he says, oh, you think I'm humble? You, you think that was lowly? Let me just say this. It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. This is happening. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be more abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. Now, catch what's happening here. You'll notice in the ESV it says, I will be abased in your eyes. I I think that the original Hebrew's right. That's from the Greek version. The Hebrew is, I will be abased in my eyes. I will be more lowly in my eyes. You, you think that you have seen me as low? You should see how I see myself as low. It is lower than the lowest that you can imagine. You would be grossed out by this. Now, why is that? Because David has had a vision of God. He sees that this is Yahweh Sabaoth. This is the God who sits enthroned, not just over the earth, but over the heavens. Angels are his footstool. He is surrounded by seraphim who don't dare to look upon him because of the glory of his majesty. And David says, if you saw that God, you would get lower too. And if you saw me in light of who he is, then you would humble yourself beyond imagination. People can't even stand to be in the presence of of a God of this might and awesomeness. She's lost sight of it. She doesn't see David as she should. She doesn't see herself as she should. She doesn't see the servant girls as she should. She has lost sight of the glories of all that is around her. Why? Because she has not seen God. I think, brothers and sisters, the main application of this message is that we need to consider the distance, sometimes we forget, of an infinite, holy God and what he covered to come down to visit finite sinners like you and me. You want to be humble? Meditate on the reality of coming before that God. And I believe that as we grow in our knowledge of God, We will be more fearful of him. We will be in awe 
of the transcendent otherness that has come near to us is our creator. And our praise will grow because we will see how much more praiseworthy he is. You know, I can love sacrificially on Monday morning when I am wronged, when people attack my reputation, they take my stuff, they're mean to my kids. I might go Papa Bear, but I can be sacrificial and loving towards my enemies knowing that vengeance is God's. I mean, if you think that there is some wrong that is not going to be righted, you have lost a vision of the God of the cosmos who is surrounded by legions of angels. It is that God who will make right. He is able because of who he is. I can love sacrificially knowing that vengeance is God's. And I can be patient knowing that the best party is yet to come. I think that the great image for us to meditate on this week is in Isaiah 6. Where Isaiah gets to come into the very throne room of God. You might notice the name that's used there is Yahweh Sabaoth. And he is looking upon the, this room and it doesn't seem like he's even in it because the train of the robe is spilling it and going out into all of creation with the glory of the great King God. And it's on that throne that the Lord sits enthroned and we are told that there are angels, seraphim around him and they are crying out day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now when he sees that, isn't it interesting that he doesn't say, you know, I might go to church today. You know, I might forgive others who've sinned against me. I might be sacrificial in loving others. I might try to make up with my wife who's been kind of mean to me. Might do it. I might, might seek to be an obedient Christian, maybe. No. It's when Isaiah sees God as who he truly is that Isaiah sees himself in his fullness for the first time. And his response is, woe is me, a man of unclean lips, and I come from a people who are unclean. How could anyone stand before this God? I believe that much of our dissatisfaction in this life, much of our pride, much of our inability to love God and obey him in the ways that he has called us to is because we haven't done enough time thinking about the majesty of that God. Brothers, sisters, let us not forget. Let's pray.